my favorite story of the week. Porn star bitten by shark <laughs> in terrifying video. I saw that. The, the, yeah. the video is quite something. in the water. Porn star shooting an underwater ad for a sex cam company. Are there actual cameras that are devoted to sex porn photography? Paul, you would know this. Well, I've actually prepared this slideshow. <laughs> and if you look- I, I would like to. I would like to posit that every new technology that we come up with, the first thing that people do is say, "How can I use that for porn?" Yeah. No matter what it is, virtual reality. Got to figure out how to do porn on that. Yeah. Well, she was attacked by a shark and badly bitten. Molly Cavalli. Is Molly her name? Cavalli. Molly Cavalli. Could be uh, in Tony and Tina's wedding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> dropped down oh. underwater into a shark cage wearing a white hot swimsuit. Say that for times. White hot fast. swimsuit. White hot swimsuit. Her presence enticed a 10 foot lemon shark. Molly panics when the shark approaches, and the next thing you know, she's screeching as she clutches her bloody foot. Here, I have a picture of her bloody oh foot with a, big, with a big shark tooth. Oh, no, I recognize thing. her by the foot. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen not, that movie. Not, not from that angle, but I do recognize <laughs> We all have our fetishes, you know. Well, I, I don't think anybody should be getting in a shark cage of any kind. People who are longtime listeners of the show will understand that, and particularly if you're a porn star in a white hot swimsuit. I've seen this video. The cage looks like it was made out of tin foil and popsicle sticks. They did not spend a lot of money. Welcome, loyal listeners, to another edition of Booth One, celebrating the art of lively conversation, focusing on the performing arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski here, your host, and uh, we have a full house in the booth today, as you can hear. In addition to my friend Paul Strolley, joining me again in the co-host chair. Uh, Good morning, Paul. It's good to be here. It's It's good to be here, yes. It's good to have you so crowded in the booth. One more person here, we need a lubricant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Excuse me. I, I, I believe that's what the tiger shark said. <laughs> is. With us in the studio today is acclaimed actor, director, jack of all trades, theatrical, Mr. Kevin Tice. Don't look around, Kevin. I'm talking about you. <laughs> Paul and Kevin have known each other for years, so we have two old friends who share common backgrounds and experiences. I'm not sure I'll get a word in edgewise after this, which is why I'm putting it all up front, because I'm not sure what will happen from here on in. Kevin, where and how do you know Paul? Where did you first meet? I met Paul in 1984 at the State University of New York, New Paltz, uh, upstate New York. I had been at school uh, in uh, New Paltz for a year before Paul transferred over from Connecticut. We were in the theater department together. I was going to the University of Connecticut at the time, so I did one semester there and then went went to New Paltz, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah. And you both studied theater there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, did you come to Chicago right away, Kevin, or did you go somewhere else? Yeah. It, it's funny. At the time, Chicago had blown up as this theater town. Uh, Steppenwolf had transferred three shows to New York in a row that were big hits. They had done uh, True West and Orphans and Bomb and Gilead. And Steppenwolf was on the cover of all the magazines. It was the theater town, all of a sudden, uh, Chicago. And when I graduated in 87, uh, I was uh, dating my now wife, Sarah, and we thought, well, we could go down to New York and live in Queens and uh, commute into Manhattan and have this sort of miserable existence, or we could give Chicago a try. It's supposed to be this hot theater town. And we moved here. We were sort of the pioneers. Uh, Sarah and I moved here in June of 87. So gosh, it's, yeah, 30, 30 years ago next month. Very soon afterwards, our friend Ted Coach moved out, and Paul and... Kevin and Sarah were the catalyst to get me to Chicago, because I came out, I visited them, and I was at their house when I called my mom, and I said, sell my car. I was here four days, and in three days, I had found an apartment. I just found, I just grabbed a place, and I said, I'll be back next month with all my stuff. So you've been been following Kevin around for for years. Exactly. And then he followed me to L.A. for a while. Yep. It's great to have Paul back in Chicago. I'm happy to be here. You went to Tony and Tina's wedding last night, oh my did God, you yeah. not? Uh, yeah. Paul Strolley's uh, directorial show. Um, yes. And how did you enjoy yourself? Oh, I had a great time. We, we, it was fun. We, I went with my wife, Sarah, and uh, two dear friends, and we had an absolute blast. At a certain point, I was telling Paul, we, we turned to each other and said, it's like being at a real wedding because it's, y- not, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so authentic and it's so much fun and the characters are so real and three-dimensional and you, it's not a ridiculous parody of these people. They're flesh and blood human beings, and it's just, we had a great time. We got up and danced. We did the chicken dance. We did everything. We did the conga line. You get caught up in it. It's a blast. I was the stripper. 
oh, last night. She's really extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> great, really skilled young lady. <laughs> she's a swivel-hipped she-devil. <laughs> Just like... What I love about this iteration of Tony and Tina's is that, as you say, it's, it feels like a real wedding. Yeah. It's meticulously staged and timed out, mm-hmm. but it never feels that way. It always feels like something spontaneous is happening, as happens in actual weddings. You never know how it's going to turn out. And it's, yeah. not, and it's not just a theatrical precision, it's a logistical precision. I was telling Sarah last night, when the, the men go up to dance with Tina during the dollar dance, I said, you don't know that while that's happening, there are groomsmen that are observing that from four different areas of the room just in case an audience member gets inappropriate. They're ready to pounce. So all of these things that you have to prepare for the eventuality, I mean, that rarely happen. I think think in in 75 performances, I think it's happened twice. Um, Yeah, but they jumped on me inappropriately, but That's true. I didn't think that was out of line. Yeah. but most of all the other of a sudden people you get did. tackled by a groomsman. You're like, hey, hey, what did I? What? <laughs> just because I left my pants on the dance, right? Really? So. I didn't just want to kiss the bride. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. Yeah, and see, and see. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, your current project, Kevin. You directed a show for the Irish Theater of Chicago mm-hmm. at the Den Theater here, which we've been to quite a number of times. It's a great space. A lot of people rent space out of that building, and the Irish Theater of Chicago is no different. Uh, we've seen a couple of their productions recently. Now, tell us about the show that you've just opened uh, that you directed. It is a world premiere of Geraldine Aaron's uh, new play called The My Way Residential. It's a brand new script, so we, anytime you work on a new script, you're, you're sweating bullets because you're not sure if it's going to work or not. We sort of slammed it together very quickly. We, didn't, yeah. we had to replace this show with another show that we had canceled, and I was extremely lucky to get the cast that we got. The incomparable Belinda Bremner is playing the lead role of uh, Willa Doherty, who, who's this old Irish lady living in Britain who is forced to live in this old age home by her uh, daughter who's sort of done caring for her mother. And is the old age home called the My Way Residential? The My Way Residential. Is that a reference to I Did It My Way, yes. the Sinatra song, or is it like My Way or the Highway? It, it, <laughs> in fact, I have the Sinatra song playing. That's the final cue before the lights go down is yeah. uh, Sinatra singing Fantastic. My Way. I yeah. can't wait to see it. Which is a far better name than the nursing home where my family stays, which is also themed after a Sinatra song. Uh, here we go. One more for the road. Oh, oh, oh dear. <laughs> sorry. Oh, look at the time. Sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> Uh, the cast includes uh, uh, Terry Bell, who plays this young staff member, uh, South African nurse uh, staff member who befriends her uh, during the course of the show, and Christine Bunwan, and Jeff Christian, and Carolyn Cruz. And it was a it was a uh, an amazing project to work on. It took us three weeks. We you know we had rewrites and we we staged it very quickly. And uh, I'm so proud of the, the final product. It's uh, we opened on Friday night. When you when you're locked in a room doing a show that has laughs in it. And it stops getting laughs. You forget how funny it is until you get an actual paying crowd to come in and sit down. And uh, so when we started doing previews and people started laughing, we were like, oh, right, funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. It's re- and so yeah. people just loved it. It's, uh, it was yeah. uh, really gratifying. It just opened a couple of days ago. It's running through June 25th at the Den Theater. And it's from the author of, well, it's Geraldine Aaron, and she wrote a play called My Brilliant Divorce. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, she was here for the entire rehearsal process, and I said, wow, how are you able to do this? And she says, oh, this is what I do. She travels all over the world and goes to these different productions where they're doing her shows. I, it's quite a life. I would love that. But wow. and, and My Brilliant Divorce has been running for like seven years in Prague because apparently... You know, that sort of thing goes over <laughs> big in Prague. They love that kind of stuff uh, yeah. in Prague. Yeah. But it's a one-woman show, and we had Barbara Figgins do it here in town last year, and she was absolutely amazing. She got nominated for a Jeff. So when we proposed doing this show, Geraldine said, sure, I'll be there. And she spent the entire rehearsal process with us, and it was really great. Sometimes having the playwright in the rehearsal room with you, the entire process is a blessing or a curse. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. did you find this to be? It, it was really great. She, we had some problems with the show initially, and we approached her with them, and she was very resistant to changing her work, as she, as she should be. But over the course of the weeks of rehearsal, as she watched what we were doing and we gained trust with her, she started to be a little more accommodating about, well, can we maybe adjust this a little bit or change that? And 
And some think she stood hard and fast with it. She said, no, no, I'm not changing that. We said, okay, it's your, your show. And so we, we were able to make adjustments as necessary. It was, it was just a really great process. It's really amazing how some authors will be that way and some will not. Our, another friend of uh, Kevin and mine that we went to school with in New Paltz, Ted Coach, went to New York. He did the production of Death of a Salesman with Brian Dennehy and he took, went to Broadway with it. And when they were doing it here, Arthur Miller was making revisions to Arthur Miller was in the house making revisions to what is arguably the greatest American play ever. Well, I hope he finally fixed that piece of shit. <laughs> piece of that the, ending. the ending is just yeah. Biff. It's just really, who bad. names their son Biff? Bad. I mean, come on. And happy? Yeah. Subtle, Miller. So. <laughs> Change the ending. So they had to put quotes around death. Yeah, just right. Not so really anymore. Just on you not looking good salesman. Yeah. Was the original. I think it was just called salesman, <laughs> was, exclamation with, point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And exactly. they had to cut the music, yeah, you know, exactly. the dancing number in the uh, second act with the prostitutes. It was, it's all just what's gone. That, what's that Woody Allen bit that, that uh, George Bernard Shaw, he, um, he acquired the rights to My Fair Lady and he was, he was removing the music and lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Turning it back into Pygmalion. <laughs> I do the worst Woody Allen. <laughs> you know, it's better than mine. Uh, and I, that's not saying much. I want to hear a little bit about your recording career. Oh, you, sure. do, you do a number of things, Kevin. One of the things that you do and that you tout on your website mm -hmm. is that you're an audiobook recorder. I am. You have quite an eclectic list. I was looking at some of the things that you've done. You've done some Jack London uh, yes. pieces, uh, Call of the Wild and, and White Fang, yes. wonderful pieces. But then you've done like the autobiography of Charles Darwin. Yes, indeed. That's a page turner. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I, I have read uh, a it starts biography one way. of Charles Darwin It's, it's interesting it. about that book is it starts one way and then it evolves into something else. Interesting. By the end, you it's I didn't, unrecognizable. I didn't believe it at all. <laughs> I didn't believe it for a second. I started reading it in the bathtub, and yeah. by the time I was done with it, I was walking around the yeah, side. No, I was exactly. walking around with it on Precise. two legs, right. breathing yeah. air. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, the Friedrich Nietzsche piece. Y yes, indeed. Uh, the Art of War by Sun Tzu. Is, yep. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Indeed. And, and, and The Prince by Machiavelli. Yep. Yes. <laughs> they're, and, they're, and Bigfoot and Frankenstein. Bigfoot and Frankenstein. Bigfoot and Frankenstein, I'm going to go on record as saying is the greatest audiobook ever created. <laughs> I, I, I worked harder on that. It's a 25-minute audiobook. To all the listeners out there right now, I want you to go to audible.com and I want you to look up Bigfoot and Frankenstein. Just listen to the sample. There's a five-minute sample on the website. It's the greatest audiobook ever created, and that's all I'm going to say. It's the greatest audiobook ever created because here's why. Because Kevin does nothing half-assed. He could have just read it which would have been funny enough. <laughs> but what Kevin decided was he approached Bigfoot and Frankenstein like it was it's the Citizen Kane of audiobooks. He did sound effects, oh, yeah. he did and it's the greatest thing ever created. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I swear to God, I, I will, I, I, my obituary, I want it to be beloved narrator of Bigfoot and Frankenstein passes. I'm writing that down because we do obituaries on this show. And yeah. if I do yours there you go. Yeah. Uh, at any point in the next 30 or 40 years, I want to be sure I mention that. Now, was this actually written by someone, a legitimate author? Yes. I know he know he gets the gag. It's not good by any means. It's supposed to be, it's intentionally written poorly and he, the other stuff he's written is very similar you know it's like Godzilla bangs Wonder Woman it's stuff like that you know it's just really really awful writing but I was <laughs> you when you go to this website where you get acx.com where you get auditions for for uh, audiobooks I, I saw this thing Bigfoot and Frankenstein and I post on my Facebook page I just saw the funniest listing on acx and I post this on my Facebook page and like immediately 30 people were like you have to audition for that <laughs> And so I said, all right. And I, I downloaded a piece of it. You know, they give you a sample to read. And it was just as bad as you would think. And I just gave it my best voice. And I, to Bigfoot and Frankenstein. And, they, it's, and, and the subtext is they are in the Wild West terrorizing yes. this town. Yeah. What? They yes. teamed up and they're terrorizing a town in the Wild West. Why would they team up? What is, what is the advantage to that? Does because it they can wreak more terror that way. Come on, use your head. Havoc, havoc. Oh, Sorry. 
Come on. <laughs> oh, I, I, I always thought Bigfoot was, uh, you know, sort of a loner, an, in, an independent <laughs> havoc wreaker. You'd think. You'd think. But y- you'd be wrong. <laughs> Do you remember a line or two of it that you could share? That you ha- Do you have any enough of it, any of it committed to memory? I, I, uh, there, there are lines where the two of them, treachery was their main objective. <laughs> The town didn't know what to do. <laughs> it was the worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> it's it's like that. So I'm so I uh, so I, I auditioned for it, and of course I get booked on it because like, <laughs> and so I started to do it, and I'm and I'm reading it, and I'm reading it, and I went, no, this needs more. And so I started putting special effects on it and music. Uh, and it, it, is the dialogue stuff like? Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. All yummy noises. Is that <laughs> what it is? And the descriptions are like, and they smiled at each other as the blood dripped down their faces. It's so awful, and I, I could not be prouder of it. I had outtakes in my on my computer at home of just me bursting out into laughter because oh, I couldn't get through it with a straight there face. Are, and, and, and as good as you are at the narration, there are moments where you can hear the laughter oh. being held. But I've been doing I've been doing audiobooks since last year. When I was in LA, I was in Los Angeles last year for about three months, uh, the beginning of the year. Uh, I went to the SAG after offices with my friend Chuck Constant, and they were, have, they were having this meeting where they were talking about how the union was trying to get these big audiobook houses to sign contracts with union actors so that you got a, a living wage doing audiobooks. And I met the creme de la creme of audiobook narrators in the country, including this guy named Scott Brick. Anybody who knows anything about audiobooks knows Scott Brick. Really nice guy. I'm sitting in this meeting, and they're talking about audiobooks and recording audiobooks and what they get paid for it and all this stuff. And I was my jaw hit the floor. Because I felt like I was standing on a pier watching this like party barge float by and all these people are having a great time and toasting. I was like, you got room for one more? I'd love to get on board. And so I started auditioning for audiobooks when I was in L.A. And I booked a few. I started recording them. And now it's my full-time job. It's what I do for a living. I do audiobooks now out of my house. Do you have a studio in your basement? Yeah, you should of see it. Of some sort? Yeah. It looks like Alfalfa and Spanky built it. It's... <laughs> No, it's, well, it's, it's serious. The, it's the origin of the name of your company. Yeah. When I was in Los Angeles, I had this big closet. And so I, brought, I went to, literally went to Goodwill and bought all these blankets and came back and nailed them all to the wall up around. So you need some kind of, of baffling around you, you know. So one of the blankets that I bought was a uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles blanket. And so I used to refer to it as uh, Fort Raphael. And so I would go into Fort Raphael. Because it had Raphael. Because it had Raphael right behind me. And so I've just started a new audiobook uh, production company here in Chicago called Fort Raphael Publishing Company, and that's where I got the name from. And I've done, since March of last year, I have recorded over 160 audiobooks. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Kevin has a tenacity uh, like no actor I've seen. He just really, just everything that he does, he just attacks and uh, just goes full tilt boogie on it. And just, I'm, I'm knowing Kevin as well as I do, I was expecting the number of audiobooks to be about 500 just because of <laughs> yeah. knowing, you know, how, how, how he attacks yeah. everything. So, How long does it take you to do one book? Uh, some of those are very, very short. Uh, I've done books that are as short as like Bigfoot and Frankenstein is 25 minutes long. It took me a couple of days yeah, to but, do that uh, one but because of the, all the special effects. Those but. are 25 churse minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're short books, you know, like uh, famous uh, British recipes. Sure. Uh, yeah. Jewish sports legends. You know, they're just short tiny, books. Tiny, tiny. <laughs> I'm telling you, they're short. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some books that I've done that are 30, 40 minutes long. I, I can record and, and upload a book in a day. Boom, I'm done. And then there are some that, like the Jack London books that right. are you know right. five, six, seven, eight hours long, and those take a couple of weeks to record. Right. I mean, if you really bust your ass, if you really sort of lock yourself down and, and, and do it, you can maybe get two finished hours done a day if you're – I mean, and that's – that's torturing yourself. Yeah. I, th- I think people think that uh, just, you know, people sit in front of a microphone and just sort of read it, and however long it is, that's how long it took to create it. And right. It, it's nothing could be farther from the truth. It yeah. takes well, I, I teach an audiobook class at, uh, at Foxhole Chicago now, and one of the things that I tell them right off the bat is I say, okay, you want to get into audiobooks? Here's how to know whether or not you should be in audiobooks. Grab a book and a flashlight and a stopwatch and go into the closet, close the door, and read out loud to yourself for half an hour. If you can do that, congratulations, Sparky. You're in the club. Wow. If you can't, do not get into audiobooks because that's the job. Right. It's locking yourself in a closet and talking to yourself for half an hour at a time. Do, do you 
create voices for different characters. I, I've done a number of Sherlock Holmes books, and those are really fun because you have to do all the various different characters. So sure. I have my Holmes voice and my Watson voice and my Lestrade voice. And Normally, I don't read the book in advance. I just sort of read it cold. And sometimes, really? yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's fine. Like reading Nietzsche cold is not easy, but uh, I did it. Well, it's hilarious. Well, you get in the middle of a paragraph and you go, nah, fuck, that's not right. And you have to go back <laughs> to the beginning and read the whole thing again. But the worst, the worst situation I ever got into, though, I was, I was reading a Sherlock Holmes book and I'm in like chapter four. And we were talking about this woman, and you know, I was doing her voice. Oh, Mr. Holmes, it must be very difficult to do. And at some point, someone says, uh, "Well, I, I, I can tell by your distinctive American accent." That you're... And I went, "No, no, no I'm in chapter four. I didn't know she was American. I had to go back and do all of her stuff again." Like, or, no. Your pronounced lisp. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It's it, it, it's finding out later on. Oh, that gravelly voice of yours. No! <laughs> oh, I've been doing him like this? Damn it. Every once in a while, I get hoisted on my own petard there for not, the pro- for not preparing properly, but normally it's fine. Do you stand up while you read? Do you sit down at a desk, much like we're sitting here in front of microphones? I, I made that mistake once of doing it standing up. The first audiobook I ever recorded was the book, for my own book. I, I wrote a book called Confessions of a Transylvanian with my friend Ron Fox, and I did the audiobook myself, and I recorded it for a week. I took a week off of work. I went down to my basement every day. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And it just killed me. And I was standing the whole time. And I had loose papers in my hand that I would have to be carefully, quietly turning the pages. Last time I ever made that mistake. Now I sit at a, a desk. We're sitting at a table right now. That's why I sit. I have my microphone set up in front of me. I have my blanket fort of Fort Raphael set up all around <laughs> me. And uh, I go on my computer and I read it off the screen instead because I can scroll quietly through the screen. There's no page turning or anything. Right. But it took me a long time to figure out how to do all that. And that's why, I, and now I teach the class in it because I have the experience to tell other people how to do it too. Well, I understand the uh, advantages of sitting down. Uh, I, I wanted to let you know though, and I, I think I'm going to do a few less podcasts because I, I, I've read something. Uh, sitting down all day can lead to a, a flat butt muscles. Wow. Because you're disengaged for so long that you forget to uh, how to wake them up. It's called sleeping butt syndrome. Really? Yes, wow. and it's a real thing. Huh. Uh, officially called gluteal amnesia. <laughs> wow. That, that's the medical term. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I hope that there's a medical journal about this story that you might be able to narrate for, you know, <laughs> blind doctors. I would. I, would I like, had sleeping butt syndrome. <laughs> I would like to officially announce that I would be willing to be a test subject for anybody studying this terrible malady. <laughs> Gluteus amnesia. <laughs> Doctors have seen a rise in the number of people who are desk-bound for so long that their behinds essentially fall asleep. Yeah. In addition to causing harm to the butt, sitting for long amounts of time can lead to other problems, including, well, poor posture, pains in the lower back, mm-hmm. your hips, your knees, not working the gluteus maximus frequently can also lead to muscle losing its tone, meaning you'd get a flat and flabby backside. This is nothing that you would want in in your profession, Paul. No, this happens to people at a certain age too. And it happens to people who either uh, can be on their feet all day or sit all day. You get old man ass after a certain point. Speak for yourself. What? Are you kidding me? I got the greatest ass in Chicago. You what? You I, do? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Let's I, see it. I, I Let's got, see are it. Are you kidding? I, I got to see I got to caboose people write letters about. Really? Yeah. I don't look at your ass, so I don't know. Well, I suppose I could find it on the internet or get bit by a shark or well, something. I've been sitting for a half hour. It isn't okay. in its best shape right now. That's <laughs> actually a fine behind, actually. Hey, thank you. Well done, Kevin. Well, Welcome. Sleep, I work hard at it. Sleeping butt syndrome, again, is uh, was coined by Chris Kolba, who is a, uh, a physical therapist at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. Who's <laughs> also selling a CD set on how to save your flat ass, I'm sure. And he's, and and he's there, invested and in his standing obituary. desks, yes, those, exactly. those things that you And there's his up. obituary headline. Yeah. Corner of sleeping butt syndrome <laughs> passes. If you find yourself, Paul, with sleeping butt syndrome, uh, here, here are some cures. These oh, are pretty obvious. Walk, <laughs> walk around for 30 seconds. Wow. Yeah. Uh, get a standing desk. In Scandinavia, apparently ranked as the happiest part of the world by the United Nations, 90% of office workers have access to standing workstations. They have everything over they there. Do. They Absolutely do. Absolutely everything. Socialized medicine. Use a foam roller. You know, that's always something. Or vary your workouts. Moves that will target the behind specifically include donkey kicks. 
I've seen you do those yes, uh, uh, do. on the yeah. sidewalk. Squats, <laughs> deadlifts, lunges, bridges, and planks. This is all a way to uh, cure it? your sleeping butt syndrome. Who'd have thunk it? So, this guy who, who discovered all this, his, his, his headstone is going to say, I'm not sleeping, but... Oh, dear. <laughs> Speaking of sleeping, listen, the, the oldest person in the world died again. <laughs> yes, Emma Morano. I guess that would happen. Yeah. The world's oldest person. Uh, we've covered this story many, many times. <laughs> the last person known to have been born in the 1800s. She died at 117 years old. Hmm. She was Italian. She was born on November 29th in 1899, and she held the Guinness World Record title for oldest living person and oldest living woman. It was officially confirmed as the last person, again, born in the 1800s, and it'll be announced soon by Guinness who the next oldest person is going to be. They're reviewing some cases. Murano credited her longevity to uh, ending her abusive marriage. That's ending one. Ending her abusive marriage, wow. wow. And a diet of raw eggs and cookies. <laughs> Talk about flabby butt syndrome. Exactly. I didn't want to be dominated by anyone, she told the New York Times of her 1938 separation from her husband. Oh, that's wow. priceless. So she that's left great. him decades and decades ago. Despite her age, Murano had a childlike love of cookies, uh, her doctor said. So much so, she routinely hid them under her pillow so no one would eat them. <laughs> I guess she did it her way. Yeah. The My Way Residential. Exactly. <laughs> Guinness said the oldest man is Israel Kristal, a Holocaust survivor who turned 113 in September. Holy wow. cow. Yeah. Emma Morano, cookies and getting rid of your abusive spouse. And my, uh, my grandmother. My grandmother lived to 99. Italian, red wine, black coffee, cookies her whole life. And what? her mother lived to 99. That's another very important. So what I've learned today is the secret to long life is being born Italian. It helps. Yeah. It really does. See. <laughs> I want to ask you about your film, Paul. Oh. You're working on a movie. Yes. An independent feature. Yes. Not starring Kevin Tice. No. no, I just got back from L.A. We were there holding auditions with the brilliant casting director, Jamie Rudofsky, who is running auditions for us. This is the production company that Cirrus Miracor and I started, Miracor Productions. Uh, we did a couple of shorts together, and we had great success with that. So we decided that the feature was the next way to go. And uh, we have secured our funding, and it's this brilliant script by a renowned playwright named Carrie Krim. And I had my theater company out there had produced the stage play of it, of Wake, this just in, uh, incredibly... The film is called Wake. The, yeah, the working title is Wake, yeah. Just this brilliant story of uh, three generations of women living in this house. The main character is a agoraphobic mortician. And uh, when Cirrus came to see it and saw the stage play, he came... Uh, outside the theater afterwards, I met him there. But at the same time, we were like, this is the great low-budget feature, small cast, limited locations. The beauty of it is not going to read like a monetary choice in, or, a, or a budgetary choice. It's just, it happens to be a very insular, small tale. So we just had our auditions. We're very excited shooting it next month. The only one who we have, because we're finalizing casting now, my great friend James Denton, who most people know from uh, Desperate Housewives. He was Mike Delfino on Desperate Housewives. He's signed on in, in what is the pretty much the lead male role. Jamie's actually a, a phenomenal actor. He's a stage actor from Chicago. And a lot of people know him from Desperate Housewives, and nothing against Desperate Housewives, but this really gives him an opportunity to show even more of his chops. So we're very excited about that as well, because he's a very, very gifted actor. You're about to go into the filming stage in June, right? And yeah, you're, yeah, you're, we have uh, 15, 15 days. 15 days in June. You're going to be in uh, Los Angeles area? Well, well, L.A. area, primarily Long Beach, the house that we've secured and the uh, funeral home. I don't even know if that's politically correct anymore, what the term is for... What? Funeral home? Funeral home? home? Is it still? Are you going to offend dead people? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If you're going to offend somebody, you might as well Do you say funeral dead. home, or is that yeah, still... Yeah, well, well, what else would you say? Well, because they have all, you know... You Shady know, rest? Memorial, or... I guess no, funeral. no, funeral home is perfectly acceptable. Funeral home acceptable. is right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Corpsatorium? <laughs> 
What do you say? So very Guests f- check in, but they never check yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. That's the Roach Motel. Oh, that's the Roach Motel. No, but thank Same you for... Same thing. Thank it's, you. It's, a, it's a Roach funeral home. It's a Roach funeral home. No, so very, thank you for asking. Very, very excited about it. Yeah. That's so, wonderful. Well. I'm a little upset, though, because my own agoraphobic mortuary script, I've now got to abandon. <laughs> Isn't that always the way it you, is? You get done writing something. Oh, you already beat me to it. Yeah, right. You turn on CBS, and there's a series about what you've been writing about. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. Exactly. There was an uh, article in the last couple of weeks called 36 Questions Designed to Help You Fall in Love with Anyone. Mm. It's a series of questions that you would have if you went out with someone and you were, you know, having dinner. And uh, it comes in three separate sections, each section getting a little bit more intimate. And each section has to be followed by four minutes of silent eye contact. So I'd like oh, to wow. see if see, any of us can like, fall in love with each other that's here. A, that's a busman's tour of hell for me. Yeah. I can imagine nothing really? more unpleasant than yeah. that. Yeah. You've yeah. got to be kind of desperate. <laughs> but I thought some of these questions were interesting. And uh, you know, they're a little bit like our chat pack sometimes that we do this you know, random question thing with our guests. Mm-hmm. And right. I thought maybe we might try these and see uh, whether we could fall in love with each other. With the four minutes? Do we have to allot the four minutes of no. silence? No. I've never been four minutes silent in my entire life. <laughs> I was going to say. No. say. I, th- I wake up every three Kevin's minutes out. when I'm sleeping to say <laughs> right, something. Right, right, right. Just say something? I, I do yes. not go Still four asleep. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Still asleep. I do not do four Still minutes of silence. That ain't happening. <laughs> Rolling over now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, here's one. Uh, this is from set number one. So these are, these are easy. Given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want to have as a dinner guest? Let's just call it people who are alive. You can't say Abraham Lincoln. Because I have my list, my, my list of anyone from any time. I yeah, right who, who's, a, who's a, oh, let's cha- say a Chaplin, uh, Jesus, Hitler, Leonard Cohen. <laughs> uh, is that the right list? Oh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm thinking that's not the right list. Yeah. Uh, How about you? Springsteen. Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton would love, would really love to chat with that guy because uh, he's got stories. You know he's got stories. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to sit down with Jerry Brown and pick his head. There's a lot of favorite authors that I'd love to. Uh, sure, uh, sure. James uh, Elroy is probably someone I would love to have a conversation with more than almost anyone else because the way his mind works is so bizarre. I would just love to sit and chat with him for just over dinner. That would be great. He I don't is, know. He is seriously out there. Crazy yeah, pajamas. Crazy like a bed bug. Yeah. I, I, have a, I have a crazy answer. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Donald Trump. Yep. Here, okay. Here's why. Uh-huh. I would love to hear what his meal conversation is like, and then I'd like to go and report all of that to all of my friends <laughs> right? and say, you're not going to believe what this guy just said what? over the Vichy Soir. Yeah. Well, it'd be 50 minutes yeah. of him talking about himself. Well, but, yeah, you know. it, it would be fascinating. It would be a study in complete narcissism. Yep. I, I did an audiobook on narcissism last year, and then when the, when the Trump thing took off... It, it's called books, The Art of the Deal, isn't my, it? My book sales <laughs> like, shot through the roof. I was like, hey, everybody <laughs> wants to know about narcissism now. This is awesome. great. Yeah. yeah. Who's your two and three on that yeah. list? Who are the backups if Trump's busy? <laughs> Hillary, yeah. I think, would be a fun, fun guest. I don't think I have a three. It's let, hard. Let me you're... stare into your eyes for a for few four minutes. minutes. Yeah. For well, four just minutes. just for just a few seconds. Maybe well, it'll come get, to me. It's getting a little weird. And I, I I think possibly either David Letterman or Stephen Colbert. Really? I think they would be oh, fascinating. John Stewart. John Stewart. John Stewart. Yeah. I would love to have dinner with John Stewart. Here's another question from, is, is, from is this, set one. Oh, it's still set one. Yeah, I was there's a about, series of like... I was hoping know, we'd get more intimate. It's like 12 questions. Well, this is, this is still the feel-out stage. Okay. I, I would also like to note that Gary has just cut out the four minutes of silence that we all just enjoyed. Yeah. We well, did stare at each other for four minutes, and it got really, really interesting in here. Yeah, did. All right, go I, on. I'm having stirrings. <laughs> No, that's your, that's your sleeping butt syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I got I got to stand up to read these next ones and walk around. I'm going to I'm going to do some donkey kicks. <laughs> Get my butt activated. When did you last sing to yourself? This morning. This morning. Yeah. In the shower or just getting dressed or just walking around? No, I just I I aloud. And I'm talking aloud. Uh, uh, not, oh, no, not no, singing yeah. in your head. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean my house has to have when we were when Monica and I were looking for condos, we had to find a place that has, according to her, Paul's dog run, because I pace 
I stopped wearing a Fitbit because I was hitting 10,000 steps by 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> So, because I pace, if I'm on the phone or whatever, and I sing. (laughs) (laughs) Oddly enough, that's the song I was singing. (laughs) I I sing quite a bit, especially if Monica's out of the house, so I don't trouble her. But I'll, I'll just, uh, just moving around. Some people home. I just just sing all the time. You sang this morning. Yes, Kevin, and I'll tell you why. Because I went to see this show last night called Tony and Tina's Wedding, and they had all this 80s music in it. And yeah. at one point, they had a conga line going. So I got to spend my entire morning walking around my house going, away, away, away. I got hot, hot, hot stuck in my head all freaking morning, thanks to this guy. It was one of the great joys of assembling that show. Did you sing this morning? Uh, no. Um, or when was the last time you yesterday. sang? That was a question. Yesterday. yesterday. Was that an unusual scenario? or? No. So no. you just sort of... Yeah, songs pop into my head and I just sing them. Yeah. yeah. Here's a follow-up to that. When did you last sing to someone else? To someone else or in the presence of someone else? I guess, I guess am, two. Am I stuttering? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to change the question <laughs> to something I can you answer. Are, right? You are Mr. Equivocator. <laughs> to someone else. To, to someone, someone else. else. And I suppose it could have been in a show if you were in a musical and you had a yeah, then that, that would be last year. That would that would count. That would count. I would. It'd be last year. I only did Mary Poppins. When's the last time you sang to someone? I think I probably sang to my kids some point in the last month or so, just because oh. we're always singing around the oh, house. But uh, sweet, yeah. That that's that's a date killer right there. When you say I sang to my kids, <laughs> and, check please. Yeah. And you, when was when's the last oh, time you sang? God. He was um, singing to me earlier. He sang to Trump actually. Yeah. <laughs> was I singing to you? I was not singing to you earlier. I'd have rem- I would have remembered that. Uh, when's the last time I sang to someone else? I probably sang to Roscoe on this podcast okay. at some point, maybe a couple of months ago. I never sang for my father. (laughs) (laughs) Just let let me put it that way. Okay. Here's the last question from section one. Do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? (laughs) Oh, wow. And remember, we're still on the appetizers here. We're still in the early part of the dinner. Secret hunch. No. Fair answer. That's a fair answer. I don't. uh, Terminal sleepy butt syndrome. (laughs) I'll die recording something in my basement and just, yeah. oh my God. And no, because the butt just explodes. Is that Is that the sound one makes when one dies of sleepy butts? It, well, I, I'm one a, would think that the origin of the sound would come from somewhere if else. If the butt explodes the way I envision it exploding, then yes, that, that, that oh, is that, the noise I will make. Oh God. <laughs> that's that funny. Was, that's question 11. Have you ever envisioned your butt exploding? <laughs> That is more. That that's in group three, though. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. that's very down yes. the list. Yeah. Uh, I I don't have a hunch. The only thing I have a hunch about is that it's going to be sudden, like hit by the number thirty six bus, <laughs> and that you know gone. I, it's, really? I don't think it's going to be a long, lingering thing. That's that's a, that's a hunch. That's, not, that's a hunch. Okay. Uh, I do believe I have the vapors. <laughs> My goodness. Hmm. I'm going to move on to section three. Oh please. Here we go. Where the questions are worth double. And there are some significant parting gifts. Well, he surveyed 100 people. What, if anything, is too serious to be joked about? Baldness Uh, (laughs) comes to mind. That's not funny. I think it's it's hilarious. It's not funny at all. I think it's hilarious. No, shut up. (laughs) it's It's not funny at all. No. I've had this discussion, actually, because my friend Bill Norris, actor here in town, he doesn't have much hair at all. He's little wisps on the side. And we were in the green room of a show one time, and some, an actress in the show made a crack about the fact that Bill was bald. And he and I sat there in utter silence, and she was like, what? And I said, you know how women find jokes about their weight hilarious? That's how we feel about bald jokes. That's exactly right. Men feel about our hair the way women feel about their weight. So shut your wet <laughs> mouth. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm constantly on the alert for double entendres about hair. Lo- like somebody will say, oh, I, that's a really nice hat. And I'll say, is that a bald joke? <laughs> Are you making, f- what do you mean by that? I'm starting to lose Very my sensitive. hair. And I'll tell you, and Paul, Paul backed me up on this. When I had uh, like the greatest hairline in the world, and I used to think, "Oh, guys, you're losing your hair. Get over it." 
It's not that big a deal. And then I started to lose my hair, and I thought, the entire world should be weeping right now over yeah. this tragedy. This yeah. is the worst thing to ever happen. Yeah. I don't know what to say. Not funny. <laughs> you go, go, go ahead, Mr. Bushyhead. <laughs> tell, I, have, tell I think I'm working on the dancing, though. I think I got the dancing started. I think I got the little uh, crown. Thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's terrible. <laughs> so, Jesus. so terrible. Yes, people in outer space can see that you're going bald. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. No, no. Uh, what, can we what, get back what, to the question? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're up. Uh, nothing. There is nothing that is too serious to joke about. Because we weaken it by joking about it. And if there was something, it's already been done. I mean, and, and Mel Brooks put it uh, best with uh, Springtime for Hitler and uh, the producers. It's all we have to deal with uh, the ultimate horrors. There are jokes about everything, and they're inappropriate, but right. that doesn't mean you shouldn't but do it. So much of it is the audience. So much of it is it, is it a private thing? Is it a safety valve joke? Yeah. My friend, uh, John Lelak, one of my greatest friends in the world, he had uh, uh, two strokes. He had uh, one stroke about three years ago, and he just had another stroke recently. And it's, it, the second one has been fairly incapacitating. So who knew there would be a stroke joke that was funny? My father went over to his house, and he, Lelac asked me, he said, can you uh, have your dad put some banisters in to go down into the basement? Because I don't have any banisters on there, and my, my washer and dryer is still down there. So if I have the banisters, I can do it. So my father goes over there in classic Italian craftsmanship style, and he puts two friggin' burled banisters, and there's scroll work and everything. I'm like, why does he do this? He goes, over the top. So I go over, and I'm bitching about my father, and I'm just like, why is this so much, it's so overkill, you know, all this stuff you don't need. And Lelac's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, John, you, you know, two banisters? It's crazy. He goes, Paul, what are you talking about? And then I have to guard myself and be diplomatic, and I said, well, John, you, you know, two banisters, you, you only have limitation on your left side. And he goes... Idiot, I have to come back up the stairs. To <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you imagine that he backed his way? Uh, like, up yeah, the stairs? Come, like, yeah, like, like an like Amish person yeah. coming up a ladder, you know? <laughs> and I, and we're, we're laughing. Now, that is, it's a, it's a joke about uh, a stroke, but because of the audience, no. because of that no. share, because of, you know, just being there, and we laughed for a day. And, and you know. <laughs> that, that, there's a very similar thing that I, my friend Will Schutz, the late Will Schutz, wonderful actor here in town, he is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and winds up up in uh, St. John's up here in Evanston Hospital. And uh, while he's there dying of cancer, his best friend, Michael McAllister, another dear friend of mine, has a heart attack and winds up in the same hospital as Will, right? So there's Will up in the cancer ward, and there's Michael downstairs in the ICU, and they got them all hooked up to the machines. There's nothing more tragic than this situation, right? Will says, Mike's downstairs, give me the phone. And they bring Will the phone up in the, the cancer ward, and Will picks up the phone. He says, put me, in, put me on the phone with uh, McAllister downstairs in, uh, in the ICU. And so they hook him up. McAllister picks up the phone, and Will says, I said visit. <laughs> Genius. Right? Genius. Yeah. Brilliant. Genius. All right. One last question before we fall in love forever. All right. Your house, and I, I might know the answer to this for you, Paul, but your house containing everything you own catches fire. Mm -hmm. After saving your loved ones and pets, should you have loved ones and pets, uh, you have time to safely make a final dash to save any one item. What would it be and why? I have a ring that... I, I don't even wear because I'm afraid of losing it. Uh, when my father w had not come over to this country yet, he was 13 years old and he was working in a goldsmith shop in Alessandria in Italy. My uncle, we called him Freddy, but his name was Alfeo. He's uh, the only one of my father's siblings to come to the United States. He would send my father silver dollars from the U.S., and my dad, at 13, melted these silver dollars in the goldsmith shop and made a ring out of it. Uh -huh. So it's like a double-tiered heirloom from my father and my uncle. So that is the, that's my, my most prized possession. I'd, I'd grab that thing. You'd run back for that. Yeah. And also, I'd never be able to carry the theater seats. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought perhaps you might, yeah. you might uh, go for the But that's a good point. Maybe I'll just leave uh, a hand seats. truck there at the ready right next to it. R remind, remind our listeners. Uh, I have two bit. fully restored uh, theater seats from Grauman's Chinese Theater mm. in my uh, living room. Which I've sat in. Yes, yeah. as has Kevin. Yep. My butt was a little sleepy after <laughs> sitting in them. But <laughs> What's yours? 
In the 1920s, in Fargo, North Dakota, my great-grandfather owned a minor league baseball club. And he also, uh, because it was prohibition, he ran a little liquor. You know this one, Paul. So during the 20s, when the, when the big ball clubs would come through the Midwest and the upper Midwest, uh, they, would, they would invariably wind up at my great-grandfather's place drinking beer and hang, hanging out. And, and they would sign memorabilia for my grandmother and her brother, my great-uncle. And so my grandmother wound up with all this material from the, from the time period signed by all the great players of the 1920s. And she wound up giving a lot of this to my Uncle Hal, because my mother had died. And Hal started selling a lot of this stuff off. But he always kept two pieces. And they have now come down to me. They were gifted to me by my uncle, because he knew I would never sell them. So in my house, if you walk into my house, you will look on the wall, and you will see a picture, and you will see a baseball. The picture is signed to my great-grandmother, Gladys. It says, to my friend, Gladys. And the baseball is signed to my grandmother. It says, to Beverly. And they're both dated... Uh, November 1926, and they are both signed by Babe Ruth. I would grab those. I I would think so. Yeah. I think probably what I would save is the uh, external hard drive <laughs> no. uh, on which all yeah. of the podcasts we've ever done are stored. Really? I'd probably have to grab that because uh, it, it's been a labor of love in, in the last couple of years. Hey, you know, I don't know, maybe five years ago, it might have been something different. But It's experiences. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. even, even photos, you have, a, you have a snapshot of an experience. But the recordings like this, you have the afternoons. You're, you get yeah. those afternoons yeah. back. Yeah, precisely oh. so. Well, that's a, a sample of the 36 questions one can ask in an encounter, and these are questions and answers that will lead to falling in love. Hmm. It's fascinating. It uh, really is. Along, again, along with the four minutes of eye contact, silent eye contact, which... That's a deal breaker. I, 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 <laughs> makes for a very lengthy meal. Yeah. 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 Kevin and, and Paul, we usually finish our uh, podcasts with a segment called The Kiss of Death. Oh, really? And uh, today is uh, no exception. We talk about uh, someone who has passed recently, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, celebrate their life and their accomplishments and, and, and see what it is made them who they were. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about author and legendary conservationist Lawrence Anthony, who died just this past March. His family spoke of a solemn procession of elephants that defies human explanation, which has to do with his death. For 12 hours, two herds of wild South African elephants slowly made their way through the Zululand bush until they reached the house where the late author Lawrence Anthony, the conservationist who saved their lives, had passed away. And the formerly violent rogue elephants, they were referred to as rogue elephants, destined to be shot a few years ago as pests, were rescued and rehabilitated by Anthony, who had grown up in the bush and was known as, get this, Here we go. the elephant <laughs> whisperer. Oh, of course. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, for two days, the herds loitered in Anthony's rural compound in the vast Thula Thula Game Reserve. <laughs> That was my stripper name for a while. Thula Thula. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so I, nice, they named it twice. Twice, yeah. In the uh, South African KwaZulu, uh, to say goodbye to the man they loved, known for his unique ability to calm traumatized elephants, uh, Anthony had become a legend, a elephant whisperer. They had not visited the house for a year and a half. These are the elephants. And it must have taken them, it's estimated it took them about 12 hours to make the journey. Elephants have long been known to mourn the dead. In India, baby elephants are often raised with a boy who will be their lifelong mahout or companion. And the pair develop legendary bonds, and it's not uncommon for one to waste away without a will to live after the death of the other. How, after Anthony's death, did these reserve elephants uh, grazing miles away in distant parts of the park know? Well, no one knows. Oh, this wasn't an organized procession or anything. Oh, The wow. elephants just knew. From miles and miles away, two herds of elephants, sensing that they had lost a beloved human friend, moved in a solemn, almost funereal procession to make a call on the bereaved family at the deceased man's home. Wow. Yeah. A man's heart stops and hundreds of elephants' hearts are grieving. This man's oh-so-abundantly-loving heart offered healing to these elephants, and now they came to pay loving homage to their friend. These herds were, were rogue some years ago, and they were destined to be shot 
because they were trampling yeah, crops. Sure. Yeah, yeah. They were breaking down fences. They were just pests, and the government had designated them to be terminated. Lawrence Anthony decided to take them under his wing and try to domesticate them to the point where they weren't such pests. His sons say that their father was a remarkable man who lived his life to the fullest and never looked back on any choices he made. Lawrence will be missed by all, and you can buy the Elephant Whisperer book on Amazon. Lawrence Anthony. That's fascinating. That really is. I just that that's that just so tells you that there's something else going on. They talk about dolphins having that sort of and elephants are ridiculously bright animals too. And the <laughs> trick is to get the elephants to go home because once they're there, they're there for. I was like, oh, it's getting kind of late, guys. And well, you can tell that they plan to be there for a while because they all brought their trunks. Right. Oh, is I, it possible to go through these questions and love someone less? Because that's what just happened. It, 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 it is. Yeah. It is. Um, <laughs> a, after, after going through this series of 36 questions and the eye contact, you might find out you could not be less compatible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And go, thanks I'd like a to, lot. I'd like to reverse my, my, my opinion on the four minutes of silence thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have preferred that. <laughs> it might be valuable. Yeah. Paul, could you do four minutes of silence Please. while Kevin and For I chat a little bit? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> Kevin Tice, thank you for being our guest oh, today believe me, on my Booth pleasure. One. You are a marvelously entertaining um, speaker and what a wonderful guy. Uh, I look forward to coming to your show, The My Way Residential. It's at the Den Theater here in Chicago, running through June 25th. It has just opened. What is it like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Yes, or exactly. Type, like, 7.30. Schedule? Yeah, 7.30. Uh, you can go to uh, irishtheaterofchicago.com for tickets. irishtheaterofchicago.com. Yep. You also have a website where people can find out how to maybe engage you to do an audio book if they have a book that they want to have read yes. or do a workshop uh, yes. of some sort. You can go to audiobookschicago.com and mm -hmm. it will tell you all you need to know about uh, signing up to uh, be in the workshop. I even do an at-home thing. I come to your house and I, I can take you through the whole process of how to become an audiobook narrator in one evening. How do you hmm. like those apples? That seems creepy, in a way. <laughs> is there drinking involved? Can you drink heavily? Yes, but you really must watch out for that smoke? butt syndrome. Because Can the adults please smoke? i got to put a disclaimer now on all my stuff. May not cause butt syndrome. Not responsible <laughs> for may sleeping may butt sleeping syndrome. Butt syndrome. Yeah. Management is not responsible for your sleeping butt. Right. Paul, thanks oh, again for uh, being our uh, guest host in the chair. Always um, fun. We, we do so, so appreciate it. Always fun to have you. You can help support Booth One's mission of presenting the best in lively conversation and amazing guests like uh, Kevin Tice by going to our donate button on our website. Uh, it's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible. Something to keep in mind, Paul, for uh, when you're doing your taxes next year if you need a deduction. Uh, and it would be so appreciated by the entire Booth One team. Go to www.booth-one.com and click Donate. Uh, like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can email me uh, with your questions, comments, and feedback at gary at booth-one.com. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski along with my co-host, Paul Strolley, and special guest Kevin Tice saying keep listening and so long until next time.